Welcome to Far Out with Faust, everybody. I am Faust Chicho, and today I am going to be doing a solo podcast for you guys. Once again, backed by popular demand. Um, this time I'm going to be streamlining and focusing on information from the JFK assassination. A very deep and dark and twisted rabbit hole to go down. Um, and because of that, I've, I've decided I'm going to try to break the information up into two parts because there is so much of it. It's, it's a doozy. Um, today, I thought I would try to focus on the how. On the, specifically on <laughs> the absurd notion and narrative that we have been fed and that stands on record to this day. Um, thumbing its nose at the intelligence of every American who cares to research and learn about actual history or even simply just watch the famous footage of JFK um, in Dallas on that dark day um, and see how <laughs> how ridiculous that narrative is even when simply viewing with two eyes um, a film of what happened. And of course, I'm talking about the assassination. Um, so stick with me. Um, I have a lot to unveil and a lot to share. Um, but I thought a, a good place to start, you know, for, for a lot of people tuning in, uh, is a little refresher <laughs> of the narrative that we, that we've been sold and that I'm sure when you look down on, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, if you look down, you'll see that they have added, um, a footnote for us to make sure that we understand Wikipedia's slash uh, the establishment's accepted version of what happened on that that world-changing day. Um, and the official and accepted narrative is as follows. John F. Kennedy was assassinated on Friday, November 22nd, 1963 at 12.30, 12.30 p.m. in Dallas, Texas, while riding in a presidential motorcade through Delaney Plaza. Kennedy was shot fatally three times, according to the narrative, from the nearby Texas school book depository by Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone shooter, according to the Warren Commission. <laughs> we'll get into what a joke the Warren Commission is as well. Oswald was a former U.S. Marine. He was arrested with <laughs> incredible speed by the Dallas Police Department just 70 minutes after the initial shots rang out. Um, and two days later, conveniently, he, on November 24th, 1963, as live television cameras were lined up in a police basement, he was um, shot to death by uh, Jack Ruby, a.k.a. Jacob Rubenstein. And that was the reporters were there to cover his transfer from city jail to county jail. So he was surrounded by police officers. Begging the question how Jack Ruby was able to um, stroll in. Jack Ruby was a noted and documented FBI informant and criminal. Uh, FYI. So, interesting facts. Like Kennedy, Oswald was then taken to Parkland Memorial Hospital, where he soon died. Inevitably, I have a feeling that was going to be the case for him. Um, and the officer that Oswald was charged with murdering he wasn't. He hadn't even actually officially been charged with murdering the president yet. <laughs> uh, I think the only official charges they got a chance to level at him was the murder of Officer J.D. Tibbet, um, who was also taken to Parkland Memorial Hospital. Now remember Parkland Memorial Hospital, <laughs> and remember Officer Tibbet, um, because these characters will come into even this discussion and then much more as we get into part two when I'm really going to go crazy and share with you guys the players that we are dealing with and get into just how twisted and dark uh, and, and the forces that had come together to conspire against Kennedy and why. Um, now, the funny thing about <laughs> J.D. Tibbet. I'm going to get into we're, we have to get into him in this part because what we're, I'm going to deal in this part with some of the hard, hard 
incontrovertible facts surrounding the debacle that went on with a the ballistics and i've i'm sure even if you are new to this you've heard the the phrase magic bullet <laughs> yeah you need a magic bullet to match the narrative that they are insisting on you need a magic bullet a, a physics defying ballistic defying bullet um and they they convinced the world there was one and we'll get into how they did that um and and so tibet comes into play we're going to talk about ballistics we're going to talk about um <laughs> caskets and we're going to talk about the autopsy my god i'm just realizing that there was three caskets and there were three autopsy reports there's that magic number three again um and i'll ex i'll explain that but um just some uh, interesting facts. Okay. Um, after a 10-month investigation, 10 months, the Warren Commission concluded that Oswald assassinated Kennedy and that Oswald killed Tibbet, and he acted entirely alone. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, following the broadcast of the very well-edited Zebruder film, which was aired for the first time on TV in 1975, a consensus throughout the American public, which had two eyes to see that President Kennedy was <laughs> and had to have been shot from not behind where the where the book depository was, where Oswald, where they claimed he was with his, you know, sitting there with his X-Men like shooting ability, um, but in the front, because it's obvious with anyone with two eyes and a brain and critical thinking that John F. Kennedy was shot from the front. Um, and in truth, maybe he was shot from the front and the back. But certainly to say that he was only shot by one person from the back is an insult to a thinking man's um, intelligence. So um, we're going to get into this because um, that, that when that film finally aired, and it was highly edited, and I'm going to show you how it was edited, I had an incredible mind and invest a uh, civilian analyst on my podcast named Robert Morningstar. And one of his specialties is photography and um, he has a degree in psychology, very close, uh, worked decades on this and, and, and actually broke some new ground after so many years. And, and, and there's been, there's been incredible, incredible, incredible work done to uncover the truth about this. And believe it or not, it's all out there. It's all out there. So it's not a mystery who killed JFK. And if you don't know who killed them, it's only because you have not sought out the information because it is not hiding, not any longer. And the people responsible are still out there. They have not been held accountable in any way. And that is because it would take the very people who are in charge of the investigations to, to appoint someone who is going to then come to the same conclusion that everyone who does this has, and that is that they are the guilty parties. Um, and, you know, court records, decades of information have shown exactly who the responsible parties were, but you haven't heard about it. <laughs> um, and you probably won't because they don't want you to know that um, it doesn't matter who gets elected, that if they decide that um, he doesn't tow the line and continue the broken system that we have in place. They'll off him. Um, that's the message that was sent when John was shot. Um, and then his brother and then Martin Luther King. Um, and so many people of that era, you had a very dark time in American history, but <laughs> this notion of a lone shooter is laughable. Laughable really isn't the word, but so let's get into this a little bit, okay? They said that um, um, that that you know, so the Warren Commission. <laughs> the I always say this: commissions are formed, and the truth is sent to these commissions um, when the truth needs demise. Okay, commissions are formed by governments almost across the board to send the truth to die. And the Warren Commission is the epitome, the absolute exemplary, um, you know, you, 
they 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 iterate this point over and over. Everything that they did was contradictory to the truth. Um, I'm going to show you so much evidence that was out, you know, and, and, and <laughs> my God, um, I, you know, let me just give you this as an example so you understand just how absolutely re- what a joke the Warren Commission is. Um, there is so many, so much propaganda at the time, okay? So famous life cover photo that was published in February 21st of 1960, 18 days after the Warren Commission started, not ended, started their investigation. They, the Life mag- magazine, the cover was published and it was a photo of Lee Harvey Oswald and the caption on and the cover was, Lee Harvey Oswald with the weapons he used to kill President Kennedy and Officer Tibbet. And that was published on February 21st, 1960, 18 days after the Warren Commission started their investigation. Now, Mark Lane, God bless him, an incredible and fearless lawyer, <laughs> brought evidence to the Warren Commission. Now, this they have not showing them that the photographs were frauds that they were that they were made they were made with cutouts he brought that to the warren commission to show them that this what you know and and it shows you that time i'm sorry that life magazine and all the media was absolutely complicit in keeping information suppressed and doing the cia's bidding and we can see this repeating over and over with every false flag with every you know, attack on the American Constitution with every murder of this sort. The media plays its role as lapdog to the state across the board with no exception. Um, and, and so they rejected uh, Mark Lane's evidence that, that it was a fabrication. And of course, it came out um, a, few, a, a few years later that those photographs were in fact fabricated cutouts um but the warren commission rejected his plea and so the warren commission was on a mission to prove the lone gunman shooter um you know the lee harvey oswald nonsense story and uh so let's get into that story because what i want to show you guys uh, first in this first part one we're going to part two is going to be really juicy, but part one, I want to get into the nitty gritty. I want to show you guys, um, just what a fucking disaster this entire operation was. And, and the word intelligence being attached to the CIA is an oxymoron at this point because everything they did and tried to do was so sloppy and, 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 so unintelligent and and that's because they were in in a panic you know uh, and you and they didn't have means of communicating the way we do now they were operating on you know their brains were in complete fight or flight and they could not rationally try try to keep up with every fire they had to put out to keep this cover up going long enough to get it out of the public side because the fir- the 48 hours after John's death was going to be the most crucial to them getting away with it. Um, and I'm going to show you why and how. Okay. So, okay, let's start here. Let, let's, let's start with <laughs> the notion, the, the incredibly foolish notion that Lee Harvey Oswald or fucking anyone, I mean, could make the shot that they said that he made. Okay. This is like, I'm sorry to make this comparison, but this is the equivalent of imagining that those people who couldn't even get their pilot's license, you know, successfully navigated those airplanes into buildings in New York City. And because people don't understand, you know, what a what a feat that would have been, you know, for a, a seasoned pilot, let alone somebody who couldn't fly a fucking one of those little shit planes um but this is like this is fantasy this is fantasy this is no different than 
imagining that America was surprise attacked on 9-11 by terrorists. <laughs> this is fantasy. This, uh, there are no surprise attacks. Not anymore, not for a long time. Do you understand that? There are none. Whenever you hear the word surprise attack coming from a media, you can rest assured it's bullshit. Complete and utter bullshit. Surprise attack. With the intelligence apparatus and technology we have, come on. Absurd. Okay, so the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the notion that Lee Harvey Oswald could even fire a rifle well is, you know, the Warren Commission was never interested in, in the truth. They were interested in their story, and that's clear from the word go. So I'm going to share my screen with you because I, I just want you to hear this right off the bat. Um, I want you to hear somebody who uh, was a Marine with Lee and friends with Lee and tell you what a crack shot he was. And um, any, you know, anybody who knew him or saw him shoot, I'm sure laughed when they heard that he made the shot that he made. I'm sure he was in just as much shock okay when they found lee in the building he was drinking a coke he had no idea what was going on he didn't have a gun on him he was you can see that evidence in um mark lane's documentary which was published in 1967 or 1964 called um a rush to judgment riddled with evidence riddled with testimony from people who were there um, and i'm going to show you some of it um David Lifton's books. Um, we're going to get into it, but um, I think the best place to begin might be um, Sergeant Delgado, who was in the Marines with Lee, and will tell you straight out what a great shot he was. This is Sergeant Delgado. <laughs> this is what a great shot Lee was. The commission asked three master rifle experts to duplicate Oswald's feet of November 22nd. They failed. Was Oswald more skilled than the commission's experts? This is an interview with Sergeant Nelson Delgado, who served in the Marine Corps with Lee Harvey Oswald. Sergeant Delgado appeared as a witness before the Warren Commission. Sergeant, prior to your Warren Commission testimony, were you interviewed by agents of the FBI? Yes, they came to my home in South Jersey to interview me. First two visits, <clears throat> they came just to get my story, what I knew about Oswald, how close we were, and things like that. After that, then they started, the questions were tending to break my story down. Hmm. Sergeant, where are you now stationed? Well, down in one of the missile south. Why would they want to break his story south down? Jersey. have been there since prior to the assassination of Kennedy. I've been here now for three years, and this month, the 20th to be exact, I'm leaving for uh, Vietnam. When did you first meet Oswald? Uh, just prior to the Christmas of 1958, <clears throat> Lee uh, Oswald reported into our unit. Oswald and I got along very good together. We were, like I said, working the same jobs involving aircrafts and radar. We uh, controlled them from the ground and uh, ran intercepts. We were about uh, 40 enlisted men that really participated in this job. All of us knew Lee, and he knew all of us. We got along fine. We had uh, discussions. Was Oswald interested in guns? They say he was a gun enthusiast, but uh, I recall many instances where we stood inspections, and he was constantly being gigged uh, for having a dirty weapon and then taking improper care of his weapon. He was always reminded when he had to clean the weapon. Never took it upon himself to do so. Do you have personal knowledge of Oswald's ability? With That's Mark Lane. At the range, he didn't. He, he couldn't prove by me that he was a good shot. As any person who's ever served in the armed forces could tell you, there's a part in the qualification that calls for rapid firing. This is done with 10 shots, eight in a clip and two that you load by hand. They give you maybe... 30 or 45 seconds to be exact to fire these 10 rounds. Well, when you fire these, then you stand away from your, from your firing position. So everyone has finished firing. Then the targets are brought down 
and scored, the targets are run back up and they're dissed for the number that you have hit, fives, fours, threes, or misses. Well, in Oswald's particular case, it was quite funny to, to look at because he would get a couple of discs, maybe out of a possible 10, he'll get two or three Maggie's drawers. Now, these are a red flag that's on a long pole, and this is running from left to right on the target itself. And you don't see this on a firing line too often, not the marine firing hmm. And it's, we, you, could, you can't help but notice it when you're seeing discs around some of the uh, things coming up and down. And farther on down the line, you see a flag waving. Well, that was going to catch your eye anyway. And we thought it was funny that Oswald was getting these Maggie's drawers so rapidly. Meaning he couldn't shoot for shit. And this is why I can't say, uh, think that he would be a, a good shot, because a good shot doesn't pull this. He'll pull a three, but he won't pull a Maggie's drawer. It's a complete miss. How did the FBI react Listen. to your statement that Oswald was a poor shot? They tried to disprove this. They did not like the idea when I came up with the, the statement that Oswald, as far as I knew, Oswald was, was a very poor shot. Do you feel that the agents of the FBI actually tried to get you to change your statement that Oswald was a poor shot? Yes, sir, I definitely do. Um, that video speaks volumes because all the evidence that, that came out ran a similar trajectory to this, okay? Um, it, it was taken and it was thrown out. It was not taken into the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission and, and, and all the investigators that were in charge were forced to eliminate and deviate from the truth at every turn and, and eliminate witnesses and, and choose the questions to ask them. And that's because of the people who were put in charge of the Warren Commission. Were the, were the very people who were in on this from the word go. Alan Dulles? Alan Dulles was fired by John Kennedy for the Bay of Pigs debacle. Okay? The Bay of Pigs was the United States' unapproved invasion into Cuba. Why? Why did we, why did the CIA launch a full scale invasion? into Cuba who without the president's knowledge who would be odd who would have the balls to do such a thing and think they can get away with it well that's a great question Alan Dulles E Howard Hunt Murchison the oil tycoons they had a lot to lose um, from from Cuba becoming um, whatever you want to call it, you know, it cutting ties with America and the way America was taking advantage of it with Castro and they wanted war. You know, the United States doesn't take kindly to people telling them that we can't exploit them. We declare them enemies and we, and we find a reason to invade operation Northwoods was that proposal and John F Kennedy shut it down operation Northwoods. For those of you who don't know was a proposal by the joint chiefs of staff that was put on John F. Kennedy's desk that had about 88 ways to false flag an event and give the United States a reason to invade and take take Cuba for itself. Not to make it part of the United States, of course, but to do what it does, what it's always done. One of those ways was, oh, uh, we, we, could, we could bomb a cruise ship and blame it on the Cubans. We could bomb a, 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 an airliner and blame it on the Cubans. Does this sound familiar? Do you think history has perhaps repeated itself? I know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And John Kennedy said no. No, 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 no. And I think that, that at that point they started scratching their heads and saying, why have we put ourselves in a position to have to ask permission to the president? And then they went ahead and tried to do it anyway. How did they do that? Well... We'll get into that, but you're going to be shocked to learn just whose, well, some of you won't be, just whose fingerprints are all over this thing. And I'm going to show you how the, it's, I mean, the trail of breadcrumbs was left by 
giants. You know, it's not a trail. It's not hard to find. The paper trail is immense. And the guilty parties, you know, this is, they're not hiding. It's all right here. It's all there. It's a lot, but it's all there. So I want you to hear this man. This is one of the, if not the closest civilian to witness the assassination. Oh, this is a different guy. But there's countless people. Yes, sir. No, not on the Vidoc itself, but up on top of the hill. The grassy knoll. Of ground or the garden. Mr. Brim, where were you on November 22nd, 1963? I had taken my five-year-old son downtown to see the presidential parade. This is a picture taken by Mr. Nix of the limousine at the time the shots were fired. Do you see yourself and your boy in that picture? Yes, sir. This is my son. Right there. On this frame here where the first shot hit the president. I would say that the he was possibly 30 feet away when the first bullet struck moved a little closer and was possibly 20 to 25 feet away when the second bullet hit did you see the effect of the bullets upon the president uh when the second bullet hit uh there was the hair seemed to go flying uh it was very definite then that he was struck in the head with the second bullet and uh Yes, sir, I, I very definitely saw effects of the second bullet. Did you see any particles of the president's skull fly when the bullet struck him in the head? I saw a piece fly over, oh, in the area of the curb where I was standing. And in which direction did that fly? It seemed to have, have come left and back. Left and back? In other words, the skull particle to the left and to the rear of the presidential limousine. Uh, sir, whatever it was that I saw did fall both in that direction and over into the... Now, if he was shot from the back, how did the brain fly the to the back? Yes, sir, I was a ranger during the war. He was a ranger during the war. the invasion of France and was shot a couple of times. So, uh, let's just say it's possibly like swimming. Uh, I hadn't heard that sound for many a year, but... You don't forget it once uh, once you've heard a shot rounding, coming close to you. Did you speak with newsmen on November 22nd and tell them what you saw? Yes, sir. And told them simply that there two shots had hit the president and the direction that I had thought the bullets had come from. Did you at any time that day make a statement which was televised? Yes, sir. Fortunately, I was... Probably 15 to 20 feet away from the president when it happened. Tell us exactly what you saw, sir. (laughs) He was coming down the street, and my five-year-old boy and myself were by ourselves on the grass there on Palmer Street. And I asked Joe to wave to him, and Joe waved, and I waved in the Oh, man. That's all right, sir. You were Because he was waving back. He was... was the shot rang out, and he slumped down. waving to a child. His wife reached up toward him, and uh, he, uh, he was slumping down, and the second shot went off, and it just knocked him down from the seat. I'm positive it hit him. I hope it didn't, but I'm positive that it hit him, and, it's, and he went all the way down in the car. Then they speeded up, and I didn't know what was going on, so I just grabbed the boy and fell on him in hopes that it wasn't a maniac around. I'm sorry. I can't help you more, but I, I won't forget it. Did you make a statement to the Dallas Sheriff's Office? Yes, I did. How long did you remain in the Dallas Sheriff's Office that day? I was, say, about three hours to four hours. Were you among the closest witnesses to the limousine when the shot struck the president? Yes, sir. I would have to say that... Uh, uh, if not the closest, one of the closest to the unfortunate incident. Uh, I did get a view of something I'll never forget. Now listen. Were you called as a witness by the Warren Commission? No, I was not called by the Warren Commission no, to testify. No, he wasn't called by the Warren Commission to testify. Why? Why wasn't he called to the Warren Commission 
to testify? Why wasn't one of the closest witnesses to the assassination called? Because they were not interested in the truth is what you need to understand. Not even a little bit. Okay. The, the, the notion is, is absurd. The evidence against it is immense. And if you guys want to hear one testimony after the next, after the next, after the next, watch Rush to Judgment by Mark Lane. I think it was a 1964 documentary that he put together because this is a brilliant and brave man, Mark Lane. Both those clips I showed you are from that documentary, Rush to Judgment. Um, and he interviews. And, and, he's just, and he was just trying to show people just how hoodwinked they're being. Um, and, and I'm going to put a link to that documentary um, in the video description. But if you want to hear one after the next. Now, I have a ton. And I'm going to share them with you guys. Um, but ballistically and... The, the, the whole notion is crazy. It's insane to even contemplate. You know, they, they, it could never have happened, let alone by one person. I was going to show you one other one, a guy who was right there and heard the shots. And the other problem with the, with the bullshit narrative is the shots went boom, boom, boom. And he was shooting a bolt action. A, a single man couldn't have done it, period. And, it, impossible. It's, it's impossible. Okay. But yet... It still says, and it will say, if you click on the bottom of this video description, you'll see the Thought Police has added a little footnote for context because of what I'm talking about so that you understand what history has uh, told us we have to think about this. Now, I got this book called Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. Now, this book was a product of the JFK movie by Oliver Stone. This came. This was one of the better things to come out of that movie. That movie would have been and could have been great if Oliver Stone didn't set, sell out and cave into pressure. That movie was originally written, and it pointed all its fingers at the CIA. But guess what? The CIA have, has its fingers also in Hollywood. And so he was pressured, Oliver Stone, to point the finger towards the military-industrial complex you know, or <laughs> as if there's a big difference, but, the, but it's a shame. I like that movie. I enjoy that movie. Kevin Costner was great. I have a friend who was in that movie. Um, believe it or not, she's, a, she's, she was in what my first movie with me, Karen Ludwig, wonderful woman. Um, my God, I just channeled my, uh, my former self. Um, but that movie got all these records released. Okay. And, uh, and so some good things came of it, even though the movie was sold out and it doesn't tell the true, true story. There's a lot of stuff added, but it does give you an idea, the kind of, you know, mystery and, and ridiculousness. And, and Oliver Stone's goal was to try to get most of the records released. And he got a lot of them, not all of them, of course. Um, but what came of it was the truth about the chain of custody that was completely demolished with the casket fiasco that happened. Now, why would there be a casket fiasco? What, what, <laughs> if the man is dead, you don't need a decoy. Okay. Um, these people are there and their coincidence theory explanations about, well, they always have decoys. I'm like, no, this was a, this was, what, for what people going to attack the hearse. It's ridiculous. Um, but let, let's get into that a little bit, okay? So the, the narrative, obviously, if you're listening to this, you already know the, probably already know the narrative is completely absurd. It's laughable. And the fact that they still tote it as truth is like, I mean, it's disgusting. Anyway, let's get into this. So see if you can keep up with me, okay? I'm going to tell you about, um, let's go, we'll go from the ballistics because the wounds suffered by the president um were it was a problem for the people who planned this and and planted it on the patsy lee harvey oswald so they had a problem because the <laughs> there was no way to make john f kennedy appear as if he was shot from behind 
Okay? None. Because of the way he was shot. But they had their... There was going to be, um, and there is, a massive conspiracy if they could not make a show of this. And they had all kinds of plans to try to do this. But they needed to doctor the body. And, boy, did, did they make a mess of this. So, here's the timeline. Um, and this is one of the biggest smoking guns you're going to find. Um, and, and just this alone... In a normal society that was, you know, not completely captured and corrupted, you know, this this would have been resolved. But Petty Officer De Dennis David stated that the president's body arrived at the morgue loading dock in a cheap aluminum casket, and he was shocked, and and <laughs> because the president was not supposed to be um, moved in that in this ugly ass tin pinkish cup that he was moved in okay um this is a fiasco guys i'm going to try to sum this up for you without losing you okay i have a timeline here but if i read it to you guys your eyes are going to glaze over and you're going to go you're going to go catatonic on me okay i'm going to try at 6 35 p.m a casket was delivered it was cheap aluminum okay it was delivered by a black cadillac mortuary style ambulance the hearse the hearse was offloaded by navy petty officer dennis david and it was being worked by about eight sailors wearing um, not dress uniforms, but naval uniforms. And there's a lot of evidence to corroborate that. The time of that casket entry into the books was 18.35 or 6.35 p.m. Um, okay, so that was typed in an after-action report. It can be proved. At s Remember that now. That was 6.35, cheap aluminum casket with the president's body. Now, at 7.15... Another casket was delivered. This one was bronze, a ceremonial viewing casket furnished by the O'Neill Funeral Home at Parkland Hospital in Dallas. That was taken into the morgue anteroom by four federal agents using a wheeled conveyance, like a, like a church truck. It was accompanied by James Siebert, FBI agents James Siebert and Frank O'Neill. Remember those two names because those two guys are heroes. Okay. Um, there was two of the good guys who managed to stay on the case and the body throughout. Thank God. Okay. Um, at 8 p.m., another casket was delivered, the same bronze color, a ceremonial viewing casket from Dallas. Um, and it was the same one, but it was empty at 7.17. Okay. That casket was taken into the morgue again at 8 p.m., this time with JFK's body having been reintroduced into the casket. Wait, what? What was going on? Okay. <laughs> Each time the bronze casket from Dallas was brought into the morgue, it was delivered to the loading dock by a light gray Navy, Navy mortuary type ambulance. Okay, the bronze Dallas casket in the light gray Navy ambulance did not even arrive at Bethesda Naval Hospital from Andrews Air Force Base until 6.55, 20 minutes after JFK's body was already delivered to the morgue via the simple aluminum shipping casket. Okay? Um... <laughs> This is a debacle, guys. The reason why you're having trouble keeping up is because everyone on planet Earth was having trouble keeping up, and they still are. Okay, even the bad guys. The bad guys were so shit confused and, and in a panic that they fucked up. They couldn't even keep track of this. Okay? Um, <laughs> okay, so the first entry of the Dallas casket into Bethesda was an empty coffin. Okay, and that's documented in this book. Empty. Why? 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 <laughs> what was going on? Okay, um, the early arrival of JFK's body in that aluminum shipping casket provided time for key medical personnel, the corrupt ones, at Bethesda to perform preliminary inspection of his head wounds and to grossly expand the, the president's cranial wounds by, the, by an illegal, illicit, clandestine post-mortem surgery in order to remove evidence of the shots from the front and the right prior to the commencement of the formal autopsy at 8.15. That's what happened. Now, we can get into theories of body doubles, which there had to have been in some way, shape, or form in order for them to pull this off because there's an extra brain floating around, as you're going to see. That's on record. That's not 
conspiracy theory any longer. Okay, it's all recorded. Um, okay, after earlier losing the casket while chasing a decoy ambulance around the grounds of Bethesda in darkness, it was imperative to those orchestrating this debacle that the confused and mortified joint service casket team be allowed to find the casket because um boy, we're playing they were playing a little card game find the casket whoops that's not the one they were i mean imagine imagine the chaos that was going on so shortly before 8 p.m and perform a duly authorized function it was it was the impossibly early arrival of jfk's body in a different casket from which it left Dallas, the aluminum shipping casket, and then a different ambulance from that in which the Dallas casket left the Andrews Air Force Base, the black Cadillac. And that broke the chain of custody of the body and therefore, by definition, it invalidated the results of the autopsy. The autopsy is what they used for their entire case. This was the this was one of the first times fraudulent science was used by the United States government to prop up bullshit and insist upon nonsense. They they used the autopsy reports and they based their whole case. This is why they were running around like chickens with their head cu cuts off, chickens with their head cut off, trying to make sure that whatever else happened they were going to see this through. And I, I want to show you a video, okay? The president's wounds, as observed in Dallas, versus six hours later when they, when they got to Bethesda, Maryland, okay? It couldn't be different. We, we have what happened, and then we have what they wanted the world to see. And they made a mess of it in between, a real fucking mess, okay? Uh, an FBI report written by two agents, those two heroes I was telling you about, um, in their opening paragraph, they said that when the president's body was removed from the coffin and placed on the table, it was, and I quote, apparent that there had been surgery of the head, namely in the top of the skull. Now, no surgery had been done at Parkland Memorial Hospital, by the way. They didn't just say surgery. They said there was a second wrapping on the head and it was blood soaked and other such details. And it was clear that something between happened between Parkland and Bethesda. Why was the body being manipulated? Why? What was going on? So I'm, I'm trying to show you guys the evidence and the vast array of discrepancies between, you know, what the list of doctors and medical professionals describe as the wounds on President Kennedy and what the autopsy personnel in Bethesda, Maryland described was brought to them. Um, it's huge. And it, it will be forever the smoking gun for anyone who cares to look into this, even if you don't believe the rest of it. There were many eyewitnesses and eyewitness testimony from Delaney Plaza to support the multiple shooters. Okay. Oswald could never have made the shot. When they found Oswald, he was drinking a Coke in the lunchroom. Okay. And if you have any doubt that this is, that, that this is what was said, watch Rush to Judgment. Watch the documentary I keep referring to. On the other hand, the precedent and pattern of the establishment to depend and declare on the judgments of experts don't even get me started because my mind goes right back to 2020, 2021, 2022 and the experts, okay? And my frustrations build. This was the dawn of bullshit. This was the dawn of, well, you're not an expert, are you? No, but I have fucking eyes and I can see, can I? I, I, uh, I have a brain that still functions in my head. It hasn't been whittled away to nothing by your education system. Okay. Um, let me just assure you that, that the dawn of bullshit and expertise being, um, you know, the thing that you, that you need in order to speak on something and have eyes, um, it started right now, right? This, with this incident, okay, um, the dawn of, you know, nonsense physics, as I call them, like masking <laughs> um, and social distancing, nonsense physics um, by nonsense experts. In other words, fraud, paid fraud. Um, it started here, okay? Now, 
The establishment based its entire defense on, upon the autopsy reports. How convenient. I'm informing you about this autopsy now. Not the two autopsy reports which had been thrown away. The first admittedly burned. That came out in court. Why would someone burn an autopsy report? Why? I mean, I, if you don't like it, maybe tear it up, throw it away. But, but burn it? I wonder what it said. Why did he admit to burning it? I guess he felt, uh, you know, he was under oath. <laughs> okay. Um, written by pathologists and the continued reexamination of the visual record of the autopsy photographs and x-rays. All fraudulent science. This is all based three bodies, the Clark panel in 1968, the Rockefeller Commission in 1975, <laughs> Rockefeller, and the HSCA forensic pathology panel in 1977 reaffirmed the basic nonsense conclusions of the Warren report. Of course they did. Um, it's absurd, impossible. And the notion was that Kennedy was shot by one shooter, two shots striking his body from behind, no shots hitting him from the front. All three reinforcing conclusions were arrived at solely by the study of the nonsense autopsy reports, which I just told you are invalid. They are illegal. The chain of custody for the body was broken. And I'm going to show you more about that now. Just so you know how bogus those autopsy reports are. This is the doctor who first laid eyes on, um, on Kennedy and what he described. Dr. Charles Crenshaw. The second wound was here in the throat, right above the necktie. It was a small opening, very small, three to five millimeters, about the size of your little finger. I looked at the wound again. I wanted to know and remember this the rest of my life. And the rest of my life, I will always know he was shot from the front and also described the portion missing from the rear of Kennedy's head. Uh, the bullet struck about where and passed about where? From here through. Taking out the, the back of the occipital part, the back of your head. This was gone. At approximately 1 o'clock Central Standard Time today, Aaron Dallas, he died of a gunshot wound. This information soon made its way to the media. This is why, at the very first press conference, Press Secretary Malcolm Kilduff correctly pointed right to his head. So, I had an incredible man on my podcast. His name is Robert Morningstar. He did some incredible work on this. Um, and say what you want about uh, his theories and whether he's correct or not. He, um, some very remarkable clips came from my interview with him, um, and I want to share them with you because I'm anxious to get into the, the juiciest parts, the parts that I know the most of, and that is, you know, George Bush's involvement, um, all the, the oil merchants involved, the meetings they had, you know, the, how the CIA was used to orchestrate this, Tibbetts' involvement, Lee Harvey Oswald's, you know, the, insanity of him uh, being this lone gunman assassin when he was in all actuality you know just a schmuck who was serving his country in the armed forces um, and was along for the ride doing whatever he was told so I want to show you guys an excerpt from everything's a rich man's trick because this summary is it's a few minutes long but it's spotless um, it also plays into um, the reason I had Robert Morningstar on my podcast was because of his mention in that iconic and um, awesomely put together documentary, Everything's a Rich Man's Trick. If you haven't seen it, watch it again and again and again and learn about actual history. Um, this is just about done downloading. So let me show you this clip. Because so Officer Tibbet had a nickname. When he was at work, his fellow officers always used to call him JFK because at 39 years of age, he looked exactly like him. In the only well-known picture of Tippett, his Elvis haircut makes him appear very youthful. But having turned grey and having nearly turned 40, most people felt his resemblance to Kennedy was uncanny. What Tippett never knew as he drove past assassination witnesses Jack Tatum Domingo Benavides 
and Aquila Clements was that he had been selected to play the role of the president in death. Researchers have always believed it couldn't be a coincidence that Tippett was shot in the right temple, just like JFK some 45 minutes earlier. They wondered why bullets had been removed from his body in the ambulance, and why, when he was pronounced dead on arrival at the Methodist Hospital, it was felt necessary to move his body to Parkland. With their concentration firmly fixed on the casket of the deceased president, the newsmen completely ignored the ambulance which spirited away the body of J.D. Tibbet, so that it could be loaded onto Air Force Two where John Melvin Liggett was waiting. When Kennedy's casket arrived at Love Field a few minutes later, Clint Hill, the agent who jumped on the car, recalled that all the people aboard Air Force One were told they had to go forward to witness the swearing-in of Lyndon Baines Johnson. This, of course, was just a ruse, to get Jackie Kennedy to leave her husband's body, and the moment she was out of the way, his cadaver was stolen and placed aboard Air Force Two next to the cadaver of J.D. Tibbet. Many people have seen this famous picture, in which LBJ is smiling at Congressman Albert Thomas, a moment after becoming president, and he is winking back. We haven't known until now just how huge and terrible a secret he was sharing with Johnson, because at that moment on the plane right alongside the most highly qualified specialist in reconstructive surgery and embalming in the country, John Melvin Liggett, was starting to make a facsimile of the dead president using the body of J.D. Tibbet in order to obscure the true extent of the damage to Kennedy's head and make it seem consistent with a shot from behind. But Liggett realised immediately this was well nigh impossible because having been told over the radio about the head shot, Liddy took it upon himself to try and ape this damage by firing into Tippett's torso and then, when he was down, firing into his right temple, instead of into the back of the head as he'd been instructed. This was a second huge mistake. The human brain has a consistency like play school plasticine. Fire a bullet through it and it is very easy for a skilled pathologist to track the bullet's path at autopsy. What Liggett wanted to show to any investigators was a brain that looked like this. What he had was one brain which looked like this, and another which looked like this. A large portion of Kennedy's brain had been ripped out by the impact of the explosive or frangible bullet, and what remained was filled with tiny shards of lead, some of them microscopic, which might take all night to locate. Liggett was terrified. The plotters had asked him to play Dr. Frankenstein at 30,000 feet. Yet with all his embalming experience, he instantly realised a botched job was the best he could possibly deliver. In his panic, he sawed off Tippett's skull and simply ripped out the entire brain to at least make sure no one could track the bullet which, after Liddy's error, had so obviously come from the wrong direction. He then compounded Liddy's error by making a large hole in the rear of the head to ape the damage to Kennedy's head. With this done, he rebuilt the skull, hurriedly sewed the scalp back together, and then set about the gruesome task of trying to make the cadaver of J.D. Tibbet more closely resemble the cadaver of John F. Kennedy. By shaving eyebrows, bringing forward Tippett's slightly more receding hairline, filling in missing segments of both heads with plaster of Paris, and rebuilding portions of the flesh with wax. Liggett performed this ghoulish service while the aircraft he was on, Air Force Two, went through the usual procedure of leapfrogging Air Force One to arrive at Andrews Air Force Base slightly earlier. He wasn't given long enough, and in the rush to get finished, the plotters now made their third and most stupid mistake. Instead of placing Tippett's body in a casket identical to the one aboard Air Force One, they placed him in a Spartan grey metal coffin inside a body bag. As the TV media showed these distressing pictures to a world reeling in shock, it's hardly surprising that no one ever dreamed this casket could be empty, but it was. As it was driven away, out of sight of the media, 
the two bodies were taken from Air Force Two and loaded onto a helicopter. It was at this point that the two honest men, FBI agents Francis X. O'Neill and his partner, William Siebert, became crucial figures in the story. They explained to researcher David Lifton that they made the journey to the Naval Hospital at Bethesda in the car behind the hearse which carried Jackie and Bobby and, most notably, Admiral George Berkeley, who made sure he stayed with the empty coffin by sitting on another man's lap. Upon reaching Bethesda, Seabird and O'Neill said Berkeley then guided the family members into the building while the hearse was ordered to the rear to unload. But that was where the simplicity ended. The FBI men and many other witnesses recalled a scene of absolute mayhem in which no one seemed to know what was going on, and military men were rushing around everywhere, exchanging anecdotes about decoy ambulances they had been ordered to follow, which had become high-speed chases around the hospital grounds as these vehicles raced away. It seems this confusion was created with the intention of misleading both the press and the large respectful crowd which had gathered on the lawn. People were asking each other which ambulance contained the President's body. Then a rumour started that it was coming by helicopter, but which one? Everyone watching that night recalls the air was filled with them, and the FBI men also told Lifton that in the midst of all this mayhem, they helped to carry the casket inside. This was flatly denied by the team of Navy men who said they did it alone. It is therefore perfectly clear that two bodies were brought to the morgue separately whilst confusion reigned. And it was now that the plotters themselves became confused by the mayhem they had created, because they left J.D. Tibbetts' cadaver in the wrong casket. It should have been switched, and gone into the autopsy room in the large expensive casket used in Dallas. I helped put President Kennedy's body in a bronze ceremonial casket on November 22, 1963, at Parker Memorial Hospital. Instead, Mortuary technician Paul O'Connor received a coffin so dull and nondescript no one could believe it had been utilised to transport the body of a president. It was a very plain casket, and when I say plain, I mean it was a pinkish grey. It had pink and grey uh, on the sides. Uh, there was nothing fancy about it as far as being bronze. Uh, it wasn't bronze. The autopsy then became a farce the moment it began. While Siebert and O'Neill made their now famous and entirely correct observation that the body seemed to have undergone surgery prior to autopsy, mainly in the head area, Commander Humes himself testified that the moment he touched the head, pieces of the skull fell right, down. So that cut off, but this is where it picks up, okay, with these two hero FBI. Now listen to what they had to do when they got into the room. This is the part I wanted you to hear to put the finale on the autopsy and what a joke it was. Remember, they based their entire case off the autopsy. Mainly in the head area. Commander Humes himself testified that the moment he touched the head, pieces of the skull fell down onto the autopsy table. That, that is, is not possible, possible unless, unless surgery, surgery was, was done before post-mortem. Post and, and that, that surgery, surgery could, could only have been performed aboard the aircraft because there was, there was no other time to do it. Hughes then found that he had to try to work with Admirals Berkeley, Galloway and Kenny actually touching his elbows during and became increasingly confused and embarrassed himself and his utter failure to find any trace of the bullets which killed the President. Of course, this was hardly surprising, considering the President lay dead in an adjoining room and that Liggett had removed all the bullets from J.D. Tibbet. No shit. As the autopsy proceeded, O'Connor revealed that Berkeley interfered constantly in the procedure, steering humans away from the torso, where he would have found the holes made by Liddy. And while everyone in the room remained aghast and disturbed by the huge hole in the back of the head and absence of any brain matter, two porters O'Connor had never seen before came in pushing a trolley which had a sheet on it which hid a small lump. They had told people in the corridor it was a dead newborn baby, but it turned out to be a complete brain, which could only have come from a third cadaver. 
This was weighed and pickled in formaldehyde before anyone even had a chance to inquire when it had been removed. The most farcical moment of all came when faced Arne Spector in front of the Warren Commission. Listen to this. Found the leading counsel pressing him to say that the wound he found in the back of the head was an entry wound. His incredible answer was that the bullet could only have entered and exited from the rear. The magic He was actually told the world that the bullet had done a U-turn inside the president's skull. Now that we know the truth... That's fucking ludicrous. Just ludicrous. So, that's the debacle that was the autopsy. And I want you to remember that their entire case was based off that autopsy. Now, what is intelligent about that? Why was there three caskets? Why was there so much manipulation happening? And yet, if you click on the bottom of this screen, if you're watching on YouTube, you can read that that's what happened, according to the thought police, according to the fact checkers. <laughs> Actually, not according to the courts, though. So, I apologize for some of the disorganization of this episode, but I'm going to make it up to you. Because next week, I'm going to focus on what I love. I'm going to focus on the players involved, and I'm going to reveal all the evidence I've found. Um, before I, I, I let you guys go with this part one, and I thank you for bearing with me. Um, if you are um, really interested in the truth, you cannot go wrong in reading um, Mark Lane's book, Plausible Denial. It is a tell-all. It is an expose. No one would publish it. Not one publisher in America would publish it, which tells you who owns them. He finally found an independent publisher um, to, to publish the book. And if you read the book, you'll see that it blows the case wide open. And it certainly dis destroys the autopsy that they based their case on. Uh, another one is called Last Word by Mark Lane. Um, Everything's a Rich Man's Trick is the documentary I just showed you. Um, Rush to Judgment by Mark Lane. And this book, Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. Um, and, of course, David Lipton's bestseller and Pulitzer Prize nominee, Best Evidence. Um, and then finally, I found these two books just recently. Uh, by, called Final Judgment by um, Michael Collins Piper. Um, the Missing Link in the JFK Assassination Conspiracy, Volume 1 and Volume 2. These books are sick. They, they lay everything out. They're, the appendix. These books are all. You can, if you want to blow your mind, pick up these two books. Pick up either one because this is kind of a, a summary appendix of everything I've been talking about and everything I'm going to talk about for next week's episode. Next week, I'm going to get into the weeds with um, the Bush's involvement in this. Um, the oil tycoons, the mafia, and everyone responsible for this. Um, many of them, you know, um, still at large in one way, shape, or form. Many of them still committing the same kinds of uh, heinous acts and setting up the same kind of nonsense science um, for their own gain. So next week, you'll see part two. I'm going to get into... Uh, the more juicy stuff, but I wanted to give you guys first established just the fact that their entire case was nonsense. It was, it's based on, on fraud, based on farce, total farce. Um, cause once you understand that the ballistics involved and the autopsy report, which they used to base the Warren commission's report off of was completely, completely bullshit. Then you understand everything else that's ha happened since um next week tune in we're going to get into um some exciting stuff but thank you guys so much for joining me if you like this video please let me know in the comments um and um i i love you guys i appreciate your time i know it's valuable and um you know i just continue to, to encourage everyone question the answers it's the best thing you can do because the answers we get more often than not you know, are, are, are not the truth or any truth for that matter. Um, 
If you have not subscribed, please do so. Um, if you guys want to uh, stay in touch with me on a regular basis, you can check out my personal IG account. It's the one Faust Chicho. Um, and uh, we have a lot of content. We're coming out, we're switching to in-person interviews. Going to be recording my first one next week. And um, got some incredible guests lined up. That's going to change everything. Um, also, we're ha- putting out a new series that's going to be similar to these podcasts, these solo podcasts, only shorter. Um, using a green screen. It's going to be awesome. So thank you guys for bearing with me. Um, I, um, I love you. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much.